Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Amen. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word. Please turn to Zephaniah chapter 3, and we'll pick up at verse 9. This is the word of the Lord, it is eternally true. For then I will give to the people's purified lips, that all of them may call on the name of the Lord to serve him shoulder to shoulder. From beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, my worshipers, my dispersed ones, will bring my offerings. In that day you will feel no shame because of all your deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proud, exalting ones, and you will never again be haughty on my holy mountain. But I will leave among you a humble and lowly people, and they will take refuge in the name of the Lord. The remnant of Israel will do no wrong and tell no lies, nor will a deceitful tongue be found in their mouths, for they will feed and lie down with no one to make them tremble. This is the word of the Lord. Be seated. One of the most comforting verses in all of Scripture, and it's something that we return to, is this. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or tremble at them, for the Lord your God is the one who goes with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. That's from Deuteronomy 31, verse 6. That thought... That God will not fail or forsake his people is one of the most comforting thoughts in all of scripture. It has undoubtedly been one one that has strengthened us in the midst of our suffering in this veil of tears. It's a sweet truth, really, that runs through all of scriptures. That verse in Deuteronomy um, is repeated in Joshua as the people enter the land, and then it's set like a pillar in the book of Hebrews chapter 13. I will not leave you or fail you or forsake you. It is unbearable to think that God would be a God who would fail us or forsake us. Right? The reality is this. It is impossible for God to fail and forsake because it's against his perfect character. Right? But it's all too possible for us to fail and for us to forsake God because that is according to our sinful nature. As it's impossible for God, it's possible for us. The northern kingdom of Israel, decades, this is decades before Zephaniah prophesied to the southern kingdom of Judah, the northern kingdom had forsaken the Lord. And for that were dragged off the land into exile and God punished them for leaving and forsaking him, right? He punished them for their idolatry. The southern kingdom has had suffered through the rule of King Manasseh. He who had filled the streets of Jerusalem with innocent blood. And Josiah, who was king while Zephaniah prophesied, turned to, uh, or tried to turn the tide of God's judgment by enacting all kinds of reforms in that southern kingdom of Judah, 
Likely, those reforms were brought about by the prophetic work of Zephaniah. So I think this book comes before those reforms happen. And yet, we know that shortly after his prophetic work and the reign of King Josiah, that Judah would be spit out of the land too. Dragged off into exile by Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. God would send other prophets to, uh, to them even while in exile, like Jeremiah. Right? But here's what we read at the very end of Second Chronicles. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. He did evil in the sight of the Lord his God. He did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet who spoke for the Lord. So Zedekiah was raised up as king, and he was proud. He was a proud man. Jeremiah warned him, and yet he did not relent. The passage goes on in Second Chronicles. He, Zedekiah, also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar, who had made him swear allegiance by God. But he stiffened his neck and hardened his heart against turning to the Lord God of Israel. Furthermore, all the officials of the priests and the people were very unfaithful following all the abominations of the nations. And they defiled the house of the Lord, which he had sanctified in Jerusalem. So this is after they're being dragged off the land. They continued to... to to uh, seek idols and do not turn to God. Then this. This is chapter 36, 15, and 16 of Second Chronicles. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent word to them again and again by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they continually mocked the messengers of God despised his word and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people until there was no remedy. Right? So this whole, this whole period of the history of the church, right? The history of, of Israel is prophet after prophet being sent by God because he loves and has compassion for his people. Prophet after prophet saying, turn to the Lord, turn to the Lord. And the people continually mocking those prophets that are sent by God. Mocking, rejecting, and scoffing at his prophets. And then it gets to this point until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people until there was no remedy. Then the book concludes, the book of Chronicles concludes by outlining the destruction that God brought upon the people through the Chaldeans. And mentioning what Jeremiah the prophet had said, that the land would enjoy its Sabbaths for, without people for, for 70 years. Three generations of just being desolate. But that desolation was peace and rest for the land. The land would enjoy its Sabbaths without these idolatrous people. Had God failed and forsaken his people? No, that cannot be. God had had continual compassion on them by sending them men like Zephaniah to warn them. The prophets had pointed out their sin and idolatry, but the people had stiffened their necks, and so they earned the punishment of God. So the early part of Zephaniah up to our passage this morning makes sense given the sin of the people. 
right? But what is hard to understand is the shift here in Zephaniah toward the positive, right? It gets very positive. We know that Judah is about to be destroyed. And yet here's a prophet still getting positive, saying, um, saying words of comfort and hope. Right? We know that Judah is about to be destroyed, sent into exile for ignoring the words of the prophets. So how can Zephaniah now talk of rescue and restoration and forgiveness? must mean that the words of the prophets apply to a time ahead, right? Past the exile of the people. Indeed, we know that after exile, after prophetic silence, after years of languishing under the discipline of God, God sent his son, right? God sent his son to redeem his people from their sins. There was one final prophet who was going to speak, right? One final prophet that was sent out of the compassion of the Lord so that he could speak. And That one final prophet was coming who would do for his people what the other prophets had only spoken about, right? Here's a prophet who would do it, not just speak about redemption, but he would accomplish redemption. This prophet, Jesus Christ, was not just a prophet, but he was also a priest and he was a king, the prophet, the priest, and the king. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high and the Lord will give him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. No end, no exile, right? And he will save his people from their sins. He's a sacrifice, right? So though the destruction is imminent for Judah, God's mercy is coming. He's promised it. His mercy will come. He does not fail in his promises. And the prophet is announcing this many hundreds of years ahead of time. Many hundreds of years ahead of time, in an awkward spot right before Judah is dragged off the land and destroyed. Verse 8 had brought the announcement of God's judgment to a climax, ending with this picture of uh, a picture as God being a witness against his people, right? The, the judge. Who, who judges righteously as a witness against his people. Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I arise as a witness. Indeed, my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out my wrath, my indignation, all my burning anger, for all the earth will be devoured by the fire of my zeal. Right? Full stop. That's, and then there's a stop. For then I will give to the people's purified lips that all of them may call on the name of the Lord to serve him shoulder to shoulder. Right? It's like a completely different tone. It's a completely different thrust. And it indicates his mercies. Right? What a profound shift from the fire of God's zeal devouring the earth to a vision of God's people having purified lips, calling on the name of the Lord, and, and serving shoulder to shoulder. Calvin says of this shift, the prophet now mitigates the asperity. Does anybody know what asperity means? It was a new word for me. I had to look it up. Asperity means harshness of tone. Right? So the prophet now mitigates the harshness 
of his doctrine, which might have greatly terrified the godly, nay, it might have wholly disheartened them, had no consolation been applied. So Calvin's like saying, if, there, if the book had ended there, it had been like, it would have been just despair. God then moderates here what he had previously threatened. For if the prophet had only said this, my purpose is to gather all the nations and thus the whole earth shall be devoured by the fire of indignation, what could the faithful have concluded but that they were to perish with the rest of the world? It was necessary, therefore, to add something to inspire hope, such as we find here. Right? It's necessary to come in after this and, and inspire hope. And that's exactly what the Lord does in this announcement. But but first telling the godly that they would be purified, you know, by first telling the, the, the godly that they would be purified, that they would worship him and that they would serve him. Though the nation had gone after idols, there were undoubtedly during this time those who, had, who were grieved by the wickedness that surround them. Those like the 7,000 who did not bow their knees to Baal during the time of Elijah. But even those people... Even those 7,000 needed purification from the Lord, the forgiveness of their sins, the Holy Spirit to give them eyes to see and ears to hear. He needed to change their deadness of life, or their deadness, into life, so that they might call on the, on the Lord. And that is what is promised here. And those, all those who have been dispersed, all his people who have been dispersed from beyond the rivers of Ethiopia will bring offerings to God. He will call his worshipers, not idolaters, to make offerings to him. He has not failed or forsaken them, right? He is going to bring them. Then verse 11, God announces freedom from shame even. In that day you will, be free, you will feel no shame because of all your deeds by which you have rebelled against me. Think of all the deeds by which you have rebelled against God. Think of all the deeds by which you've rebelled against God today. And then go back a week and then go back to your youth and think about the shame that rises up from that. And that day you will feel no shame because of all your deeds by which you have rebelled against me. How is that possible? Has not God made them feel shame for their sins in the previous announcements of his coming judgment? Um, the people, the people had felt no shame. That was their problem. Remember what the prophet said in chapter two: "Gather yourselves together, yes, gather, O nation, without shame." They have had no shame. Shame is a gift from God. Those who who have not God have no shame. Right? It is only those who have God who have shame. They have a context for their sinfulness. Right? Um, one who feels no shame for sin will never, ever be impelled to repent of that sin. This is why shame is a gift from God. Right? But, and this is very important, God does not leave us in that shame. Right? God does not leave us there in that shame. He calls us out of that shame by faith in Jesus Christ. The sacrifice of his son was for the forgiveness of sins, every last one of them. Right? And following shame comes restoration. And following shame comes forgiveness and the tenderness of God toward wicked sinners. The tenderness of God. He forgives and forgets our sins. 
right? If in Christ your sins have been forgiven and forgotten by God. We are brought into a sweet calm, right? From troubled seas to perfectly smooth glass-like calm seas. There's just no trouble. From darkness into light, from death to life. Oh, he will continue to use shame when we sin against him. But by faith in Jesus Christ, we are to consider ourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. That's how we're to consider ourselves. That's the story of all who live by faith in Jesus Christ, whether before or after his appearing. Right? By his appearing, we consider ourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ. Ezekiel. Ezekiel, that prophet that experienced um, the burning fire of, of, of God's zeal in exile. Right? Ezekiel is prophesying during the exile, describes the removal of shame from his people with this glorious picture in chapter 16. And, and it's a long passage, and, and I want to focus on it because this topic of shame is very important. But Ezekiel chapter 16, it's mind-boggling. Right? Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, make known to Jerusalem her abominations. So Ezekiel, make known all the sins that that you have that the people have committed. Just just show them everything. Declares the Lord. Oops, I skipped. Um, Son of man, make known to Jerusalem her abominations. Say, thus says the Lord God to Jerusalem: Your origin and your birth are from the land. Of the Canaanite, your father was an Amorite, your mother a Hittite. As for your birth, on the day you were born, your navel was, uh, cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water for cleansing. You were not rubbed with salt or even wrapped in clothes. No one, no eye looked with pity on you to do any of these things for you, to have compassion on you. Rather, you were thrown out into the open field, for you were abhorred on the day you were born. And when I passed by you and saw you squirming in your blood, I said to you while you were in your blood, live. Yes, I said to you while you were in your blood, live. I made you numerous. Like plants of the field, then you grew up, became tall, and reached the age for fine ornaments. Your breasts were formed and your hair had grown, yet you were naked and bare. And we think, what a glorious picture of God. Having tender compassion upon his unloved children, Israel. But the passage goes on. And this is how the the prophet is showing the abominations of the people. Then I passed by you and saw you, and behold, you were at the time for love. So I spread my skirt over you and covered your nakedness. I also swore to you and entered into a covenant with you so that you became mine, declares the Lord God. Then I bathed you with water, washed off your blood from you, and anointed you with oil. I also clothed you with embroidered cloth and put sandals of porpoise skin on your feet. And I wrapped you with fine linen and covered you with silk. I adorned you with ornaments, but put bracelets on your hands and on and a necklace around your neck. I also put a ring in your nostrils, earrings in your ears, and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver, and your dress was of fine linen, silk, and embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour, honey, and oil, so you were exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty. 
And then your fame went forth among the nations on account of your beauty, for it was perfect because of my splendor which I bestowed on you. So no shame. All their shame of that, that, that terrible birth, that not even being cleansed by, by their, her parents, now being cleansed by God and set up and, and all the shame taken away. And then verse 15. But you trusted in your beauty. Oh. And played the harlot because of your fame. And you poured out your harlotries on every passerby who might be willing. You took some of your clothes and made for yourself high places of various colors and played the harlot on them, which should never come about nor happen. You also took your beautiful jewels made of gold, of my gold and of my silver, which I had given you and made for yourself male images that you might play the harlot with them. Then you took your embroidered cloth and covered them and offered my oil and my incense before them. Also my bread, which I gave you, fine flour, oil, and honey with which I fed you, you you would offer before them for a soothing aroma. So it happened, declares the Lord God. Moreover, you took your sons and your daughters whom you had borne to me and sacrificed them to idols to be devoured. Were your, your harlotries so small a matter? You slaughtered my children and offered them up to idols by causing them to pass through the fire. Besides all your abominations and harlotries, you did not remember the days of your youth when you were naked and bare and squirming in your blood. And then it came about after all your wickedness. Woe, woe to you, declares the Lord God. What an aside right there, right? It's in parentheses in our, in our version, and it shouldn't be. It should be set off by M dashes, which would emphasize it. Right? Just a little printing problem here. And then it came about after all your wickedness. Woe, woe to you, declares the Lord God, that you built yourself a shrine and made yourself a high place in every square. You built yourself a high place at the top of every street and made your beauty abominable. And you spread your legs to every passerby to multiply your harlotry. You also played the harlot with the Egyptians, your lustful neighbors, and multiplied your harlotry to make me angry. Behold now... I have stretched out my hand against you and diminished your rations, and I delivered you up to the desire of those who hate you, the daughters of the Philistines who are ashamed of your lewd conduct. Moreover, you played the harlot with the Assyrians because you were not satisfied. You played the harlot with them and still were not satisfied. You also multiplied your harlotries with the land land of merchants, Chaldea, yet even with this you were not satisfied. How languishing is your heart, declares the Lord God. While you do all these things, the actions of a bold-faced harlot. When you built your shrine at the beginning of every street, made your high place in its every square, in disdaining money, you were not like a harlot. You adulterous wife who takes strangers instead of her husband. Men give gifts to all harlots, but you give your gifts to all your lovers to bribe them to come to you from every direction for your harlotries. Thus you are a are different from those women in your harlotries, and that no one plays the harlot as you do, because you give money, and no money is given you. Thus you are different. Therefore, O, o harlot, hear the word of the Lord. 
Thus says the Lord God, because your lewdness was poured out and your nakedness uncovered through your harlotries with your lovers and with all your detestable idols and because of your blood of your sons which you gave to idols, therefore, behold, I will gather all your lovers with whom you took pleasure, even all those whom you loved and all those whom you hated. So I will gather them against you from every direction and expose your nakedness to them that they may see all your nakedness. Thus I will judge you like women who commit adultery or shed blood are judged. And I will bring on you the blood of... Of wrath and jealousy. I will also give you into the hands of your lovers, and they will tear down your shrines, demolish your high places, strip you of your clothing, take away your jewels, and will leave you naked and bare. They will incite a crowd against you, and they will stone you and cut you to pieces with their swords. They will burn your houses with fire and execute judgments on you in the sight of many women. Then I will stop you from playing the harlot, and you will also no longer pay your lovers. So I will calm my fury against you, and my jealousy will depart from you, and I will be pacified and angry no more. Because you have not remembered the days of your youth, but have enraged me by all these things. Behold, I in in turn will bring your conduct down on your own head, declares the Lord God, so that you will not commit this lewdness on top of all your other abominations. Behold, everyone who quotes Proverbs will quote this proverb concerning you, saying, Like mother, like daughter. You are the daughter of your mother who loathed her husband and children. You are also the sisters of your sister, the sister of your sisters who loathed their husbands and children. Your mother was a Hittite and your father an Amorite. Now your older sister is Samaria, who lives north of you with her daughters, and your younger sister, who lives south of you, is Sodom with her daughters. Yet you have not merely walked in their ways or done according to their abominations, but as if it were too little, you acted more corruptly in all your conduct than they. As I live, declares the Lord God, Sodom, your sister and her daughters, have not done as you and your daughters have done. Is the shame coming down? On these people. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had arrogance, abundant food, careless ease, but she did not help the poor and needy. Thus they were haughty and committed abomination before me, therefore I removed them when I saw it. Furthermore, Samaria did not commit half of your sins. For you have multiplied your abominations more than they. Thus you have made your sisters appear righteous by all your abominations which you have committed. Also, bear your disgrace in that you have made judgment favorable for your sisters because of your sins in which you acted more abominably than they. They are more in right than you. Yes, be also ashamed and bear your disgrace in that you made your sisters appear righteous. Nevertheless, I will restore their captivity, the captivity of Sodom and her daughters, the captivity of Samaria and her daughters, and along with them your own captivity, in order that you may bear your humiliation and feel ashamed for all that you have done when you become a consolation to them. Your sisters, Sodom, with her children, and Samaria with her daughters, will return to their former state, and you with your daughters will also return to your former state. As the name of your sister Sodom was heard from your lips in the day of pride, Before your wickedness was uncovered, so now you will become the reproach of the daughters of Edom and of all who are around her, of the daughters of the Philistines, those surrounding you who despise you. You have borne the penalty of your lewdness and abominations, the Lord declares. For thus says the Lord God, I will also do with you as you have done, you who have despised the oath by breaking the covenant. Nevertheless, I will remember 
my covenant with you. In the days of your youth. And I will establish an everlasting covenant with you. Then you will remember your ways and be ashamed. When you receive your sisters, both your older and your younger, and I will give them to you as daughters, but not because of your covenant. Thus, I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall know that I am the Lord, so that you may remember and be ashamed and never open your mouth anymore because of your humiliation. When I have forgiven you all that you have done. When I have forgiven you all that you have done. He's, God's shouting at them about all the evil they have done. And all of us think about all the evil we've done in our lives. Right? And that shame comes down upon us. But then God, at the end of it, says, but I will remember my covenant. I will remember my covenant. And there will come a time when you won't, you, you won't remember the abominations that you committed. I, I will forgive all that you have done. Shame followed by forgiveness. Shame followed by forgiveness. All, all by the covenant faithfulness of God who has said that he will never fail or forsake us. God is truly slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. He disciplines us as a father for our good, but he also has established our righteousness in his son, Jesus Christ. He's established it. You are forgiven in Jesus Christ. Right? And so all of this, for me at least, as I was coming across this passage, is sort of condensed down in Zephaniah and these uh, these five verses I read, the purification and restor- restoration of his godly ones is, is not even all that God promises in this passage. In the second um, half of verse 11, notice what it says. We learn that God is going to remove the proud from the midst of, the, of his people. He's going to remove the proud from the midst of his people Zephaniah said, For then I will remove from your midst your proud, exalting ones, and you will never again be haughty on my holy mountain. God promises his remnant, right? That, notice that word in the coming verse. A, a purification within his people, within his church. But when the church, um, but when the church is humbled or the church is decreased, we have a tendency to think that God is against the church. Right? When, when things diminish, we have a tendency to think that God isn't there. It's our, it's, you know, it's, it's our Texas sort of mentality, bigger is better, um, that we have as Americans. But, but a decrease of the proud, a decrease of the proud in the church would ultimately be a gain to the church. Though it may seem like her earthly influence was diminishing at that point. Imagine if in a few years... Imagine if in a few years all the influence of internet pontificators and national figures and celebrity Christians were just removed. Imagine if that happened in our Christian culture today. At first blush, we'd be worried sick. We'd be like, what, what sort of punishment is God doling out against us? We'd be concerned that the church was being cast aside and was losing its influence in, uh, in the American um, 
in the American uh, civic uh, religion. We'd think that God intended to bring the whole down when the self-proclaimed leaders had their influence removed. We like our proud ones. We love our proud ones that are, are, are so vocal and who, who can get on national TV programs and, and, and play with the big boys and, and proclaim the, um, the Christian worldview, right, while all their hair stays in place. Um, we like our heroes and to have signed copies of their books in our libraries, right, so that we can boast about having been close to excellence, being close and rubbing shoulders with, with the high. We like to tweet quotes of, of our pastors so that we can proclaim that we've, we've submitted ourselves to somebody who's smart, not somebody who's dumb. Look, look at this quote. It proves he's smart, right? And we, we want to submit ourselves to somebody with clout. We want to submit ourselves to somebody with credentials. It boosts our own status when, when we can do that. We love our proud ones. We love our proud ones, and, and to have them cast out by God would really make us question whether or not the church had sufficient power to continue existing in the world. We need our proud ones, you know, our degreed ones, our Tim Kellers, who, who are invited to write for the New York Times. There's no higher honor in the world than writing for the New York Times. No higher influence than that. We need these, and if God were to purify his church and cast out the proud ones from our midst, we just might think he were failing us rather than saving us. Calvin writes that this would undoubtedly be the case, that we would consider it to be God's punishment. He says, So it was necessary that some consolation should be given to the faithful, that they might patiently bear the diminution of the church which had been previously predicted. Hence the prophet, that he might moderate their grief, says that this would be for their good. For in this manner the reproaches were to be removed by which the Jewish name had been polluted and rendered abominable. I mean, oh, that we might be prepared for that same thing. Right? When God purifies his church, what is he going to do? He's going to remove the proud ones. And, and that's for the good of the sheep. Right? But, but remember this, he does not show favoritism. God does not show favoritism. He may take out any man he desires. And if that man is serving himself rather than God, we should expect that God will do so. Because his love for his people is jealous. His love for his people is jealous. He loves his sheep. He loves his faithful ones with an everlasting covenanted love, just like we read about in Ezekiel chapter 18. And he will not, God will not allow his children to be misled. He will not. He will always embrace and protect and provide for his remnant like a good father. Right? He will provide. But oh, how much we do not want to be little. We don't want to be little. Everything we do today, it seems, is to be done in order to be big, to be noticed, right? To be recognized, to be retweeted, to be shared. But if God loved us, he'd take all of that away from us. He'd take all of that away from us and we'd become what he says here in verses 12 and 13. But I will leave among you a humble and lowly people. And they will take refuge in the name of the Lord. The remnant of Israel will do no wrong, tell no lies nor will any deceitful tongue be found in their mouths, for they will feed and lie down with one, with no one to make them tremble. 
I mean, it's a very simple picture, isn't it? The proud ones are out. God's, God's caring for his sheep. And they're just humble. They don't lie. They, they feed. And they're not scared. Oh, man. It's, it's just not what we consider to be like success. Right? It's just humble. It sounds really untweetable. Doesn't it? I rested today. I rested without fear today. <sighs> you know? You can't tweet a sigh. Like a sigh of relief. That's what this passage is. It's a sigh. It sounds like it wouldn't make for good shareable quotes on Facebook. Just a humble and lowly people who don't do wrong, who don't lie, and who rest in God. In other words, we would be this. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. And we would have this kind of influence. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong and the base things of the world. And to despise God has chosen the things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are so that no man may boast before God. Man, we have so many boasters before God, don't we? It's like Christians today are trained to be boasters before God. And we'd be seen like this. We are fools for Christ's sake. Fools. I have a sense that God is doing this in the church today. He's breaking down proud works. He's breaking down influence-seeking works and raising up small works. I think the celebrity culture of the church is being exposed, and we should be thankful for that. Right? The Reformed world, the PCA, has for so long wanted to have clout, wanted to have standing in the eyes of the world, wanted to, um, wanted to be mainline and recognizable. And with that has come compromise. And the... the And with compromise comes the advancement of ambitious men. I believe in coming days we'll see a proliferation of smaller works, of smaller denominations, smaller regional works that simply have it as their ambition that God would be worshipped, that his people would tell no lies, and that they could rest without fearing. These little things, and not little things, but these things we so long for but don't have. What a glory that will be. God has told his people through Zephaniah that things were going to change, and these changes are ultimately fulfilled many, many, many years in the future through the work of Jesus Christ. He would be the catalyst for removing the proud men from the church. Remember that? The Pharisees, and in their place, fishermen and tax collectors and ragtag small group of men would be used by God to spread the message of salvation in Jesus Christ around the world. The church will always be in need of reformation, but that reformation will look much different than what our celebrity Christians tell us it looks like. Right? It will be the closing of the mouths of the proud and a simplicity and humility in living for God. Reformation always comes via God removing the proud from the church and exalting the humble. You remove the Pope, you get Martin Luther. 
He was a mess. He was a sinful mess, and God raised him up and pushed the Pope down. That is both, it's, it's a satisfying and a sobering thought. It's sobering. He can take out any man. Judah is about to be destroyed, and yet here is God encouraging his remnant, his few, his godly ones. He wants his people to know and remember that he will never fail or forsake them. He wants them to remember, as it seems, that every kind of evil is breaking down the walls of the church, that he will always he will always have led his people to those green pastures and they will feast in the midst of his enemies. The Father, through his Son, has brought peace among men with whom he is pleased. Amen? Let's pray. Our Father, we acknowledge that you are holy, that you are just, that your punishments and your discipline are always just. And Father, we pray, we pray that as you purify your church, and even if, if we were to see the church diminish greatly in this land, Father, we pray that it would be because of your pruning work, your removing of the proud, so that your people might praise you. So that your people may praise you just in peace and in quiet, without fear and without trembling. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.